Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today we have Sean Wilson. He is the organizing director of Dream.org, and he's here with us to discuss our broken criminal justice system. Welcome, Sean. Thank you guys for having me. How are you? We're we're doing good. Um, Jack, it seems to me that a lot of our shows uh, deal with uh, this type of an issue. Uh, just uh, not too long ago, we had uh, Paul Sparks on, who is a, uh, a tradition or a uh, transition coordinator for inmates going out into the community, and just in talking to him about that system, you know there's something wrong, right? Oh, it's clear, and and I think the 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 root of the problem is that in essence, whether we want to say it or not, I think we look at offenders as throwaways. They've committed a crime. Be hard on crime. End of discussion. As opposed to, what do we do to help these men and women? Well, it seems to me that the system is set up to put as many people in jail as possible and then not set up very well to help them get out of jail and be productive in the community. You know, it's interesting. I've read more than once that I think the U.S., it may be as a total number or it may just be per capita, but we've got more people in jail than any other country in the world. That's incredible. Sean, you have your own experience with uh, being in prison. Is that right? Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about what happened with you. Absolutely. I, and, 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 and I also like to, you know, preface these calls with, um, you know, letting your listeners here as well as those who follow me in the work that I do. Um, just remind folks that um, I am, you know, a son, a brother, a father, a husband and a individual that is committed to relieving all of us of the systems of oppression that we experience in our life. And I just happen to have a closer experience or closer proximity to what we all know as the criminal justice system. So over 20 years ago, I was removed from a Milwaukee neighborhood that is known all over the country as the 53206 zip code. Um, reportedly, this is the zip code that has the highest incarceration rate for black men in the country. And so at the age of 17, my friends and I um, decided to do adolescent things or I guess um, illegal things where um, we robbed someone. And as a result of that robbery, um, we all were convicted and sentenced to the Wisconsin Department of Corrections. I like to say that the judge threw the entire courtroom at me. Um, And the reason why I say that the judge threw the entire courtroom at me is because in your remarks earlier, you said that our criminal justice system has a tendency of disposing um, of human beings. And so I like to attribute that to my situation and 
say that the judge looked at me and considered me to be disposable. And she sentenced me to a total of 17 years initial confinement. That means that I was to serve 17 years confined to a correctional setting. And on top of that 17 years, upon my release, I was ex I was told that I will serve a total of 23 years on probation, parole, extended supervision. And so the judge looked at me as a 17 year old kid and say, I'm going to give you the same amount of time that you lived on this earth. Unbelievable. I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around the logic in handing a 17 year old the same amount of time in prison that they lived upon the earth. I haven't even had an opportunity to experience life, but my indiscretion gave the judge the impression that I deserve 17 years in a carceral setting. And so over 17 years, realizing that a great injustice had just taken place um, upon me, I began to do everything in my power to prepare myself for release because I did have an actual release date. Many individuals don't have an actual release date. So I had a Tuesday, as we often say, um, in Wisconsin and throughout the country, we had a release date. And so I just basically prepared myself for my release. Um, I studied, I did that internal work, that healing. I took accountability and responsibility for my actions and made a commitment to the guys there, as well as to my family that I was going to come home and really do a complete, um, turnaround in how I walked upon the earth. And now I live my life fighting all systems of oppression, no matter where it rears it, uh, its ugly head. I am somewhere having a conversation about how we disrupt it and how we begin to restore and repair the lives of individuals who have been harmed by these systems. And just before, before I pause, you mentioned that, I wanna just touch again on the disposable piece. Um, the judge looked at me as a young black man or a young black boy, she didn't see her son. She didn't see her neighbor. She didn't see a student. She didn't see any of those things. She saw a young black boy from a Milwaukee neighborhood standing in front of her who has committed a crime and is deserving of a prison cell, of a closet, of a six by nine, five by nine, whatever measurements you wanna put on it, she thought that I was more deserving of a punitive response than a restorative response. Sean, you had uh, 17 years mandatory then, no possibility of parole during that time, or did you come up for parole? Um, I, so in Wisconsin, they have a law called truth and sentence, which means, well, truth and sentence abolish um, parole. So on December 31st, 1999 at 12 p.m., um, 12 a.m., um, truth and sentence went into effect, which meant you are going to serve 100% of your time. Over the years, they've made amendments where they say, okay, you're able to serve 85% of your time, but you have to fall under these felony classifications. And um, I wasn't eligible for any of that, so I've, I've ser served a total of 17 years in prison. When you think about your situation in particular, what reforms would have made a difference? Because it 
Sounds like it may have just been an issue with your judge, but maybe there was issues with your lawyer. Maybe there's issues, like you say, with the mandatory uh, time um, statutes. Uh, what reforms would you say could have made a difference? So you often hear people say, hey, I don't believe I deserve that much time. I believe I deserve some time. Um Knowing the environment of prison, I don't know if that's a good idea or I don't know if that's a good place to send someone to to get rehabilitated, to um, get treatment, to get any type of programming that is going to return them back to um, the community whole. Our current environment in prison is a microcosm of the world in which we live in. Whatever you see on the news, you will see a semblance of that in our prisons. And so given that this is an environment that is very volatile, where you have guards, very disrespectful, that dehumanizes the, the individuals that they are charged to supervise and ensure that they're receiving the programming that the judge has sentenced them into, that is not the case. This is an environment where there's a lot of fights, there's a lot of dehumanization, there's a lot of sensory deprivation. This isn't an environment where an individual is going to come into and begin to heal from their trauma. This isn't an environment where an individual is going to come into and begin to take the necessary steps to become a better person. You have to want that for yourself. And I, being someone who was raised by my grandmother, knew that I done, I've done something wrong. And my grandmother said to me and has raised me to always take responsibility and accountability for your actions. You messed up. You screwed up. What do we do now? One, we're going to get you the best attorney in the state of Wisconsin. I have one of the best attorneys in the state of Wisconsin. However, me having the best, best attorney in the state of Wisconsin didn't prevent me from receiving a 50-year sentence. So what I would say is, first, the it behooves the judge as well as the prosecutor to get to the root cause of this young Black boy that was raised in a middle-class environment but had proximity to an environment that um, in, in a way pressured him to step outside of how he was raised and, and, and step outside of the values and the moral, morals that was instilled in him. Like the, the, there's questions that should have been asked that wasn't asked. And I think if the judge and the prosecutor had embarked on that journey of figuring out what has caused this young man to pivot and go down this this street, then I believe that the sentence would have been a little bit more appropriate and sensible. I think what you're pointing to is that even though the institution responsible for your incarceration is called the Wisconsin Department of Rehabilitation, you're suggesting it should be named the Wisconsin Department of Punitive Measures. Absolutely. And the problem is we're just not geared for rehabilitation. I mean, the mindset in America is 
be tough on crime. And we see that, ironically, Gonzo, we hear judges running for office and judges say, I'm going to be tough on crime. Wait a minute. Judges should be tough on the evidentiary rules. Judges should be tough on the procedural rules. Judges should be neutral on on criminal matters. Is that resonating with you, Gonzo? It does. And um, Sean, I ran for common pleas judge in our uh, our local county here about six years ago. And I, as a part of that, I went to churches, uh, a lot of the Baptist churches. And I told you, Jack, that was some of the best experiences I had uh, oh, running. Sure. But the pastors were very clear that um, they wanted judges to look at the individual that were in front of them. And these, mm-hmm. are, these are black pastors, and they're talking about black youth coming up on felony charges. And uh, But they're also very candid that no judge wants to stick his or her head out, let somebody, so to speak, off, you know, easy, and then that person commits a, a more heinous crime because that's a good way to, to kill your, your career. And, um, you know, one of the things I thought about is, is that it shouldn't be about your career. It should be about the person in front of you. And certainly if a respected member of the community and, and you know, a pastor from, a, from the church puts his or her reputation on the line for somebody, why wouldn't a judge consider that in sentencing? Well, the problem also, and I would imagine Sean can speak to this, the judges don't have great resources to rely on. They've got a prison system. They really don't have a system to rely on that does the type of investigation and analysis of the person that Sean suggests. There's a big vacuum. Or am I missing something, Sean? Absolutely. You're you're right. The oftentimes, I mean, they do these pre-sentence investigator reports and the pre-sentence investigator meets with, you know, the parents and they may meet with a teacher and folks can send letters in, but the judge isn't aware, isn't aware that there are services and treatment programs that are available that reside, that is, that exists outside of a prison setting. Like they're not aware of that. However, some of the crimes that are committed um, leaves the judge with the impression that I have to lock this person up, which is completely understandable. However, one one of the questions that I would ask a judge and also a prosecutor who is under the impression that I must lock this guy up for a period of time, I would ask them, do you know what you're sentencing them into? Because oftentimes you sentence someone who, you know, just screwed up and then they spend five, 10 years in prison and come out worse off than they went in because now they've been exposed to things that you would have never imagined. And then they commit a more heinous offense. And now they're back in front of this judge and you're saying, hey, I gave you a chance a couple of years ago and you didn't take advantage of it. That's because you <laughs> you sent me into a jungle and you was not even aware that it was a jungle. Like we like I recommend every judge and prosecutor to at the very least, like visit these prisons, visit these jails that you're sending people into so that you know what type of environment that you're sentencing people into for years upon years. Like that is like restorative justice. That is like um, um, 
um, leading from the bench. Like, you know what this person is going to get access to. You're asking the right questions. If I sentence a guy into a substance abuse program, how long before they get into the program? If I sentence a guy into a cognitive-based program, how long will they get this programming? Are they going to have to wait until they're six months, six months um, uh, away from getting out before they get access to this programming? Like, understand what is happening within the facilities that you're sentencing folks into so you can assure society, so that you can assure your constituents that these individuals are going to get the quote unquote corrections from the department that you're sending them into. And that's not the case. Sounds to me like to achieve what you would like to achieve, you've got a double challenge. One challenge is convincing America that the people who are in the criminal justice system are not disposable. That's the first challenge. And and I think that's probably a massive challenge. The second one is getting the government to cooperate in creating the type of systems that offenders need to rehabilitate. Am I missing something or, or is there even a third challenge involved? Yeah, I think what, what you see in the broader movement for criminal justice reform, that's what our organization does. We try to bring directly impacted individuals uh, proximate to uh, elected officials. We try to bring them proximate to system actors, i.e. Um, lawyers, prosecutors, and judges, so that they can see that these individuals aren't disposable, that you should listen to these individuals who have been dealt injustice and have gone through that injustice and it's easy for us to become bitter. It's easy for us to become angry. But those of us who are like really out here advocating for systemic change are saying to these judges, are saying to these prosecutors, listen, look at the backstory. Get the backstory before you dispose of these individuals. If you get the backstory, guess what? You're not gonna dispose of them. You're gonna realize that these individuals are experiencing a great deal of trauma that has gone undiagnosed, they're hurting, and in turn, they're hurting other people. So how do we prevent hurt people from hurting other people? Because what currently happens in our criminal justice system is, Jack, you commit a crime against John. I, the judge, say, hey, Jack, you shouldn't have did that shit. I'm going to sentence you to 20 years in prison. Now, you done hurt um, John's feelings. And so what's going to happen is you're going to go to prison for 10, 15 years in language, or you're going to take accountability and responsibility for your behavior and make a change. And guess what's going to happen to John? He's going to go home and he's going to question himself. Am I a good person? Because I've heard bad things don't happen to good people. So I can't be a good person because this bad thing has happened to me. So what has been created is a trauma reaction as a result of a crime perpetrated against John. And so what if the courts responded, hey, Jack, we're going to get you a counselor or therapist and hey, John, we're also going to get you a counselor and a therapist to work through this trauma 
this hurt that has been perpetrated against you so you, John, don't continue this cycle of hurting people. And that is what's happening in our criminal legal system. There's a cycle of hurt that is taking place. If you talk to any perpetrator of a crime, nine times out of 10, they've been hurt before. And that hurt has turned into trauma. And as a result of that undiagnosed and untreated trauma, they go off and hurt someone else. And the cycle just continued. I was robbed before. I was robbed at gunpoint at the age of 15 years old, gun in my face. I, I thought I was dead. I didn't even realize how this was going to affect me. I just went on about my life. You know, there wasn't a, a, an adjudication of the of, of the of the crime that was perpetrated against me because I didn't know who the person was. I didn't call the police because I didn't have any hope in them doing anything on my behalf. So I went on with my life, not realizing that a traumatic I just had a traumatic experience. Sure. And so what happened? What happened with me a couple of years later? Same thing, only you, the roles were reversed. The roles were reversed. And that is what's happening, unfortunately, in our country. So our court system has to do a better job of how they adjudicate um, cases that comes in front of them. And those of us who have gone and done significant time in prison are leading the charge in getting proximate to these folks so that they know that redemption is real um, and that they should avoid disposing of individuals so that um, they can get them the help that they are really in need of. So you're talking about mass incarceration and you talk about justice reform, and I know they're interconnected, but it seems to me they're, they're really two different things because most of the people that are in prison are guilty of something that they did and that there's a prison penalty for that. Uh, reform means maybe they don't spend as much time. Maybe there's a different or alternative to a felony prison sentence. Are your, is your organization working kind of on both of those fronts? Absolutely. So our mission is closing prison doors and opening doors of opportunity. And so we believe that if we can pass legislation that begins to dial back some of the draconian laws that have been put in effect for the last 30, 40, 50 years, um, and, 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 and it having some, some form of retroactivity to it, then we can begin to release individuals who have been in prison for um, a decade plus back into their communities so that they can, you know, live their life um, healed, restored, and contributing to the forward progression of their community, their family, and themselves. So we're working to pass legislation at the local, state, and federal level. At the federal level, for example, we're working on a piece of legislation called the Equal Act. As you all know, the Equal Act gets rid of the disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Mm. We all are familiar with the drug wars. We know right now um, it's 18 to one, I believe. What we're trying to do with the Equal Act is make it one to one. And there's a, a, a retroactivity to that legislation that will apply to individuals who have been in prison for the last 10, 20 plus years. You're going too fast. Explain the 18 to one ratio. You left me behind. So, so, so think for, for example, if, if I was to be, so if I was caught in possession of five grams of crack cocaine, 
I will be facing a sentence of 50 years, for example. And if you, Jack, was caught with five grams of powder cocaine, you will probably face a sentence of five years. And so we're talking about uh, we're talking about a drug that is, you know, the same. You know, you have one that is in crack form and you have one that is in powder form. I mean, solid form and then powder form. There's nothing different from these two drugs. The only difference is that you have a predominance of white people using powder and you have a predominance of black people using crack. And so as a result of that, black people get the the heavy hand side side of the sentencing when it comes to drug offenses and white people get the lesser hand of sentences when it comes to drug offenses. And so what we're working to do is level the playing field so that one to one applies to everyone instead of one or the other based off of, you know, their 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 uh, race and ethnicity. Got it. Thanks. So when you think about that particular uh, concern, that's a legislative function. Uh, mm-hmm. We were talking about going to judges and showing them the the kind of the results or the consequences of some of the sentences they impose uh, because they have some discretion there. But legislation has turned a lot of that discretion into not much discretion. I mean, the federal sentencing guidelines were just a mess for years, and now they're less of rules and more of guidelines. And in Ohio, uh, judges really work off of a cheat sheet to figure out what a sentence is. And some of the appeals that I've worked on are all about whether the person was sentenced properly. And oftentimes they weren't, right? Or um, and it's So it's a legislative function. And Jack and I talk a lot on this show about how intrusive our legislators are um, in, in, in every aspect of life. But what would you rather have, Sean, a, a judge exercising discretion that may be harsh or the legislature trying to do a one shoe fits everybody type of statute? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. So I think that, um, I would probably rather have, um, I think one feeds the other, you know, what what the legislature do, the judge employs. And so if we can um, inform legislators on how to vote for and pass legislation that is sound and informed by proximity, then when it comes in front of the judges, the judges will be able to um, use their discretion um, through interpreting this 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 law, this policy, this legislation, and when they are handing down sentences, because the legislature has been proximate to the people who are going to be most impacted by these laws. You know, I'd, I'd like to take a little bit of a left turn here, and I think Gonzo and I would say that, or, or, heck, I said it. 10, 15 minutes ago, judges don't have that many options for things related to restorative justice. But Mm -hmm. I I like to talk or if even brag about a judge who retired from Franklin County a few years ago because he did something on his own that was marvelous. His name was Paul Herbert. 
And he got, he realized that sentencing prostitutes wasn't getting him anywhere in terms of reducing the amount of prostitution. And so he created a program called Catch Court, which I think was changing attitudes to change habits. And so he created on his own, didn't ask for permission, didn't go to the legislature, just created this program to provide women an alternative means to going to jail and as a consequence, got a lot of women off the street. So the point here is that even though judges may have few good alternatives, you know, there's always room for that one person thinking extra hard and doing something on his own. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's what we need more of. And that's why, you know, I have a lot of judges on my Rolodex um, who I consider great friends, mentors. Um, who I often call um, and shoot the shit with. I don't know if I can. You okay? Well, um, who you, I often you've already said it, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and both of your you both you guys both are lawyers, so I I, I got a good defense here. So <laughs> if FCC wants to, <laughs> um, so so yeah, so I often you know call them and have conversations with them, and and there's been times when they've called me. And had a conversation with me as well, just about the, you know, generalities around, you know, case law and interpreting case law and just and they do that just to get my lens as someone who has this lived experience and really feel um, that I was done an injustice. Like they're really trying to figure out, like, how can they best show up um, on behalf of the victim? And also, how can they best show up on behalf of the 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 perpetrator or the offender? I try not to use those type of um, terms because I always want us to refer to people in first person language. I want us to look at individuals as humans and not as like offenders, as convicts, as victims. I want us to look at one another as human beings and not. Um, throw those labels on them because when we throw labels on people, then we um, assign the meaning of that label to them, and that if, that affects our judgment, that affects our perception. And so um, I try to be mindful of that. So I don't really like referring to individuals as like victims, perpetrators, and offenders. I try to refer to them as you know human beings, as individuals standing in front of the 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 judges and prosecutors. Um, as a result of the indiscretion that they've made in society. Being the uh, social philosopher that I am, what you're really talking about on this smaller sector of America, the criminal justice system, is a problem for all of society. I mean, because we label people who are different. We categorize, we draw lines, and we all forget that we're all human beings and that by that alone, we've all got the same. We sh- we all are entitled to the same dignity and respect. But that doesn't sell these days. It doesn't, and that's and that and that is like one of the biggest hurdles is like convincing um, more so legislators um, who have this tough on crime persona until they themselves are faced with the you know with with in front and until they themselves are standing in front of a judge then they don't want or believe in this tough on crime agenda 
that a few years ago they ran on. They want the most lenient sentence. They want the highest fine that you can possibly give them. But please don't send me to prison. Please don't remove me from my mansion and my beautiful community and my vehicle and my cigars. But a couple of years ago, you were saying that we need to be tough on crime. And you're one of the biggest criminals out here stealing from the American people, misleading, misguiding the American people. But now all of a sudden you want the judge to be lenient. You know, I'm like, I'm, come on. I'm chuckling because just a few months back, the former speaker of the Ohio House was sentenced to 20 years in prison for various financial crimes. Do you remember what he said at sentencing Gonzo? It was something to the effect of, well, judge, my family has already suffered enough. <laughs> Gee, no. sorry. Yeah. Well, it, what Sean's talking about brings to my mind our former president. And of course, you know, when he went through uh, his uh, pretrial arraignment, it's a lot different than almost anybody oh, else yeah. that's right. uh, committed uh, whatever 70 plus, uh, uh, you know, uh, alleged to have committed 70 plus crimes. But, you know, you got to wonder, even in his mind, uh, he's got to be sitting there going, oh my gosh, this is serious. And it, it's it's got to be a new reality for him, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. A reality he never thought he'd get hit in the face with. No. Um, hey, Sean, you had a uh, – when I was reading some of the things that you provided and in, in looking at um, the stuff you've been involved in, uh, what caught my attention is this smart justice. And what it talked about was you're involved in an effort to reduce Wisconsin's jail and prison population by 50 percent over the long term. And to eliminate racial disparities in the system. And I, I just thought that if you can erase the racial disparities, you probably come a long way towards getting your 50% reduction, right? I mean, that's got to be a big part of it. That's the biggest part of it is the racial disparities. Um, I mean, because with the racial disparity, racial disparities entails um, um, disparity in sentences. You know, that's what mm -hmm. race, racial disparity entails. And so when I was at the ACLU of Wisconsin, um, that was our focus. Like, how do we eliminate racism from the criminal legal system? Like this was a mammoth of a task that we um, or a mammoth of a goal that we sought out to achieve. And we made some significant strides in Wisconsin. And that came um, with the election of um, Governor Tony Evers, who was receptive to some of the um, some of the some of the acts that advocates and organizations was was asking of him. Um, he put in place a, a secretary of the Department of Corrections who came in and really put into effect um, some major changes. One of the biggest that I think or one that I think is very significant is we're not going to refer to individuals as inmates. We're going to refer to them as persons in our care. And so when you refer to someone as a person in our care, you assume a sense of responsibility for that person. And assuming that responsibility, you want to uh, you want to ensure that these individuals are receiving all of the treatment that they are in need of so that in fact they are returned back to their community, quote unquote, restored, quote unquote, rehabilitated and able to navigate the reentry process successfully. And so I commend the governor for appointing 
Secretary Kevin Carr, who used to be, I believe, uh, um, a marshal, if I'm not mistaken, a U.S. marshal. Um, and I believe he was appointed by the Obama administration um, for one of the regions um, in, the, in the country. But he came out of retirement as the Secretary of Department of Corrections in Wisconsin and has given advocates access to the Department of Corrections as well as organizations in the state of Wisconsin access to him. At the very least, he's willing to listen. And if what you're presenting to him is viable, he's going to work with you to try to bring them, bring it into um, fruition. But he understands, and what most advocates and organizations have to understand is he is at the helm of a of a of an organization or the helm of a system that has been going along doing the same thing for the last 10, 20, 30 years. And he's not going to come along and change things overnight. It's going to take time. And he, he also has to get buy-in. And so I would say the appointment of the secretary of the Department of Corrections um, allowed us to have an impact on the landscape around criminal justice in Wisconsin. The appointment of uh, former parole chair um, John Tate uh, allowed us to, you know, see some individuals who have spent more than 20 years in prison come home and are successful um, in society right now. Um, we were able to get the governor to change the policy around probation and parole um, prior to the governor's election and him installing or appointing these individuals in the positions that they are in. We were sending anywhere from two to 3,000 people back to prison in Wisconsin for not committing a new crime, Jack, but for violating an arbitrary rule of supervision. And so, for example, John and Jack, you guys live in apartment A. You guys decide that you're more inclined to live in on the lower apartment. And so you move without getting permission from your probation or parole officer. And unbeknownst to you, you just violated your parole and you're going where? Back to prison at a cost of anywhere from 50 to 60,000 a year to the Wisconsin taxpayer. We were paying 200 million a year for two to 3,000 people to go back to prison for not committing a new offense, but just violating the rule of supervision. So we were saying on the ground, hey, we have to have a better response to probation violations, to rule violations. Do, does it require a sale or does it require a conversation? Does it require treatment? Does it require programming? Does it require us saying to the Wisconsin taxpayer, we want you to foot this bill of $60,000 to cage this human being because he decided he want to smoke a joint? Find out if he has an addiction, is if he's mis is if he's abusing this, this marijuana. Like, Ask the appropriate questions so that you can get this person help. Yeah, I think the system is set up uh, for for being lazy, right? It's just easier to uh, send them back for a technical rule violation than to, than to really figure it out. Sean, um, with the little time we have left, I want to get back to a little more of a personal thing. Um, 
seems to me that people in prisons care. Um, they're caught in a system that is going to be slow to change, if at all. And um, some of the people that we talked to on this show, uh, their religion was very important to them to help them cope and to really keep them on, uh, you know, following the rules when they get out. A lot of the the prison programs and the post-prison programs are religious, uh, Catholic-based that we've found out about. Not necessarily Catholic, but just Christian. Christian-based. Yeah. And uh, I think I saw somewhere where you became a Muslim, and uh, maybe you can talk yeah. about how that helped you. Absolutely. So the the religion, the, well, I was raised in a um, Baptist household, you know, uh, went to church, went to Sunday school. My grandmother had me, you know, as our little sidekick, um, sidekick um, at every Bible study and every Sunday service that, you know, <laughs> she was able to get me to um, before I got of age where I was able to come up with an excuse to not go to church and Bible study. But I was raised with Christian values and Christian values are the same as Islamic values. A lot of people think that there's a difference, but there really isn't a difference. We allow um, semantics to get in the way of us building relationships with other faiths. And um, when I got to prison, I had an opportunity to really delve into my studies. And so, as I said, I was raised as a Christian. I know the Bible from front to back, cover to cover. Um, from every chapter, I was able to recite Genesis all the way through uh, Revelations. Um, and so having that upbringing and going to prison, of course, we all question our relationship with our creator. We all ask ourselves, you know, what is my purpose? And so we all go through that. Um, we go on that journey of introspection and coming into an awareness of who we are and what our purpose is upon the earth. And that's what I did. You know, some of the questions that I had as it pertained to my Christian faith um, was not being answered. Um, I went back and forth with many of the um, the the Christian ministries that came into the prison um, to the point where I was like disrupting the service. Because when I was asking questions, you know, the the, the preacher or the minister was unable to answer them. And so that caused other folks to like rally behind me and say, hey, I want to know the answer to this question that he's posing. But what these folks, what these guys didn't know was that I was deep in study. I was deep in, I had concordances after concordances. I had Hebrew, Greek um, dictionaries. And so I was studying, I, I mean, I was really studying the scripture. And so Islam really like grabbed a hold of me and convicted me and let me know that um, we are all worshiping one God. And in Islam, we call him Allah. If I was a Christian, he will be called Allah. If I was a Christian Arab, he will be called Allah. Allah in Arabic translates to the God. But I converted to Islam when I was around 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. And it is a, 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 um, a way of life that is very disciplined. And so having that discipline early on in my life allowed me to navigate my prison experience 
um, pretty gracefully, where my focus was on study, playing chess, and interacting very minimally with the quote-unquote inmate population. When I interacted with the population, it was only a select few of individuals that I interacted with. But when I interacted with the whole population, it was on the basis of, hey, they're not supposed to be doing this to us. The rules say that the rule says this and they're doing that. So here's our opportunity to challenge them. So when I interacted with the whole population, that's when I found myself in segregation because they were saying, who the hell is this guy? Why is he writing these complaints? We need to remove him off of the um, the compound and let him sit in a sensory depriving cell where he can see nothing. And maybe he will come out, you know, um, more susceptible to the bogus rules that they were implementing. But what happened was I was able to to develop a stronger relationship with the creator. I was able to develop a stronger relationship with myself. And I was able to better prepare myself for my release uh, when that day came. And that's why here I am coming up on seven years of being released and I'm able to go into various spaces. I've been able to have a great impact um, in this work called criminal justice. I've been able to forge some lifelong impactful relationships. And I will say that the genesis of that came from my time in a cell my time buried in scripture and my time um, burying my face in various books from the philosophy to psychology to um, and, um, um, anthropology, whatever you whatever you whatever it comes to mind, I was reading it one way or the other. Sean, your uh, your um, great faith and your compassion is is obviously evident to uh, to us and probably anybody you meet. I would um, suggest, if it's okay with you, to anybody who wants to find out more about you, to watch the HBO documentary, uh, Growing Up Milwaukee. Uh, And we appreciate you taking some time and uh, talking to us today. Absolutely. Wonderful having you, Sean. Our thanks to WOSU and our sound engineer, Dalton Jones. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend. We want this to be more than just us. We want it to be all of us. We'll be back in another week or so. Until then, so long.